I know I've said this before, but we really do have a scheduled outline of topics that we're trying to cover, and we plan those like three or four months in advance, and we rarely stick to that schedule. Not because we don't want to cover those things, but the truth is, every time we see something new that comes out in print or something that's about to come out in print, or we get an interesting clinical case from our real-world daily practice, or some really good clinical question from our podcast family members, of course, we use that to present during our episode, and then we bump our scheduled list of topics. Well, that's exactly what we're doing again today. You see, yesterday we admitted a patient to labor and delivery who is young, reproductive age, and had a BMI of 41. Now, she came in for medical induction of labor for gestational diabetes on medication. So she's an A2 GDM. Now, thankfully, she progressed very well. She had an uncomplicated and and very routine vaginal delivery with no postpartum hemorrhage. Mom's fine. Baby's fine. That's great. But here was a question that I left our residency team with. Listen, this patient is otherwise healthy. That's good. But her BMI is 41. And although she didn't have a C-section, what is the guideline? What are the recommendations for pharmacological VTE prophylaxis? Are there any? And that was their assignment to go look up and come up with a plan for when we met today, just 24 hours after the patient was admitted and now delivered. So that's what we're covering in this episode. Now, if you're first thinking, wait a minute, vaginal delivery, nobody gets VTE prophylaxis from that. I mean, it's only if they've had surgery. Well, it's not so clear because the right answer for that is, well, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, there's some guidelines who absolutely favor pharmacological VTE prophylaxis, even after vaginal delivery in those women that have a BMI over 40. That's class 3 obesity. And then there's others who are absolutely against it and say, nope, the value just isn't there. So with two opposing viewpoints, as I've said many times before, you know that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So while the guidance is relatively clear for the obese postpartum, post-C-section patient, especially when there's other minor factors like preeclampsia, growth restriction, or a known thrombophilia. That's a no-brainer. They, of course, get prophylactic VTE prevention for up to six weeks. That's not argued. But what about VTE pharmacoprophylaxis after vaginal delivery? Should we be doing that? Well, a lot of different societies have a lot of things to say about it. So in this episode, let's cover VTE prevention after SVD. Here we go. This is Cade. I'm a third-year medical student at Texas A&M University. I'm Kimia. I'm an undergraduate student at Texas A&M University. And And this this is is Clinical Clinical Pearls. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, that's a good question. I mean, VTE, prophylaxis after SVD, I'm not talking about putting like SCDs. That's one thing. Remember what we're talking about here, pharmacoprophylaxis. In other words, using a medication, a medical agent to try to prevent VTE, all right? So AKA, let's just say what it is, even though we're not supposed to use brand names, Lovenox. 
otherwise known as enoxaparin as a generic, right? So that's what we're talking about here. Hey, if you want to give somebody SEDs, knock yourself out. But the criticism with SEDs in a patient with a BMI of 41 uh, is very straightforward and very basic, which is, um, is that pressure even getting to where it needs to be? I mean, sometimes it's hard to get through that calf muscle and, and extra adiposity, even in the extremities, and it may not have the same effect uh, in a patient who has a BMI of 41. That's why there's all of these additional uh, recommendations to use pharmacoprevention, uh, right? That makes sense? So we're talking about specifically the use of Lovenox after vaginal delivery. It really is much easier when you're talking about a C-section. Take, for example, the publication that came out just three years ago in August of 2020. SMFM released their console series number 51, which is thromboembolism prophylaxis for cesarean delivery. Well, there you go. It's exactly what we're talking about. And it's interesting because even some critics from this guidance say, hey, there's a big gap here because uh, obesity in and of itself we know is a massive risk factor and it's not adequately discussed in here. You're like, ooh, that's, how is it not adequately discussed in here? Well, it is included in here as a, quote, additional risk factor. But let me be very clear. It's much more straightforward when a patient has a thrombophilia or obviously a personal history of VTE or PE. We know what to do with those. But obesity in and of itself, which is an independent risk factor, doesn't get a lot of limelight, but it should. Hence, it's a gap in recommendation, all right? So let me read to you the straight out of the SMFM Console Series 51 from August 2020, what the recommendation is regarding the use of pharmacotherapy for VTE prevention after cesarean birth, all right? Quote, we recommend that all women who undergo a cesarean delivery receive sequential compression devices starting before surgery and that the devices be used continuously until the patient is fully ambulatory, end quote. All right, that makes sense. SVD for uh, S SVD. Oh my goodness, sorry. SCDs uh, for C section. That's pretty clear. But what about medication like Lovenox? Well, here we go. Quote, we suggest that women with a previous personal history of DVT or PE who undergo cesarean delivery receive both mechanical and pharmacologic prophylaxis for six weeks post-op. They go on to say, we suggest that women with a personal history of an inherited thrombophilia, high risk or low risk, but no previous thrombosis who undergo C-section also receive both mechanical starting pre-op and continuing until ambulatory and pharmacologic for six weeks post-op prophylaxis. All right. So it's very clear. Look. Everyone is to get SCDs after C-section. That's great. And if they have a personal history of a PE or a personal history of VTE, that's a no-brainer, right? Use that and Lovenox. That's fine. And even if they have a low-risk inherited thrombophilia, and obviously if they have a high risk, and even if they do not have a previous history of thrombosis, then they still are recommended to get both mechanical and pharmacological prevention for six weeks. Fine. But notice what's missing in there. It doesn't say, oh, by the way, if the patient is obese, then do X, Y, or Z. So they stick with C-section, personal history, and thrombophilia as their recommendation. Now, this is a little bit different from ACOG. ACOG says also, yes, pneumatic compression devices should be used for all women undergoing C-section. But here's where it gets a little gray regarding, at least for the C-section part. ACOG states, quote, 
women with additional risk factors for VTE may benefit from pharmacologic prophylaxis, end quote. So additional risk factors, yes, thrombophilia, got that, all right, smoking, yes, massive PPH, yes, because that throws off clotting factors, blood transfusion, I get that, and obesity is on there. But you notice that they don't really spell that out, and the reason they don't spell that out is because they do not endorse any specific risk scoring system because they're just not validated very well in pregnancy. Now, there is one called the Purdue, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but ACOG doesn't really enforce or endorse one scoring system for who to use pharmacological prophylaxis versus not. And remember, this whole discussion, this little snippet that we just did as an excerpt, has to do with C-section, not after postpartum, in other words, not after spontaneous vaginal birth. Before we really do get into the whole issue of vaginal delivery and should we or should we not include Lovenox in high-risk patients, in other words, those with BMI over 40, right? That's class 3 obesity. First, let's just quickly play the role of devil's advocate here and give the viewpoint that this is much to do about nothing. Advocates for not using Lovenox after vaginal delivery state that, hey, the reason that ACOG doesn't have a true guidance on it is because eh, it's vaginal delivery. The biggest risk factor is surgery. So if they deliver, yeah, their BMI is, you know, over 40, but nah, they'll be all right because there is a viewpoint for that. So, so let me give you the numbers here based on that viewpoint. So here it is. There's about a 0.1 to at max about a 0.5. 5% risk of VTE postpartum when you talk about the overall prevalence. Now, here's the catch, recognizing that that is 10 to about 50 times lower than the risk of medical inpatients who are deemed at high risk for a variety of other conditions like nephrosis or cancer or whatever else, right? Remember, this is just a devil's advocate point. They're like, hey, yeah, there's a risk. It's like 0.1, maybe 0.5% at at the highest end for postpartum, but it's still about 50 times lower than those who are really uh, at high risk for a medical issue. And they also say, hey, look, honestly, the the risk here of postpartum VTE is about 10 times lower than the risk of VTE after a hip or knee replacement therapy. Now, those numbers are all right. Okay, now I'm going to give you the rebuttal here in just a minute. But this this is the case for why some say don't give Lovenox after vaginal delivery. All right, they're like, ah. Risk much smaller than those that are medical patients that are high risk for VTE, and then much less after knee or hip replacement. Let me read to you one rebuttal why we should not be using uh, postpartum Lovenox, again, after vaginal delivery, okay? Again, this is not my stance. Let me just give you some of the viewpoints that have been out there. Quote, although the actual number of postpartum VTE events is large because of the huge denominator, that's like over 10 million deliveries per year between Europe and North America, quote, universal postpartum thromboprophylaxis cannot be advised for this uncommon event. In an optimistic scenario of a 70% relative reduction of VTE by short-term low molecular weight heparin, one would need to treat about 1,500 women to prevent one VTE event. 
This number needed to prevent is likely too high from the perspective of healthcare costs and likely women themselves. They go on to say the key is to stratify women at different risk levels, which is exactly what we're trying to do here in this episode, to avoid treating women at low risk and to reduce a thrombotic risk in women at very high risk so that we can find the optimal balance of prevention of VTE. End quote. All right, that all sounds good, right? Did y'all get that? So the, the stance here is, hey, yes, VTE happens and it happens on big numbers on a population scale. But really, I mean, to treat everybody, you have to treat a lot of women to prevent one uh, bad VTE slash PE event, okay? So as you can tell, yes, that, this was written by a non-OBGYN author. You get that? Isn't that wild? Because you're like, ah, you all worry about that. We worry about that much more after knee or hip replacement. But postpartum is probably, the numbers aren't there. Now, just to be very clear, that's why it is a little bit gray about using Lovenox after vaginal delivery. Because you get these weird rebuttals like this. And the, the main rebuttal from women's health to that is that, hey, those numbers that were cited are absolutely correct. However, losing a mother to a pulmonary embolism in the postpartum interval is absolutely devastating. So while the overall prevalence may be low, the relative risk is very high. And when it does happen, it should have been preventable. Plus, according to a survey of maternal deaths in the U.S. from 2011 to 2013, pulmonary embolism was responsible for 9% of those deaths. And guess what? Obesity was the main risk factor in about 60% of those. So do you see that rebuttal? I don't know. It's pretty rare. I don't know. It's vaginal delivery. You'd have to treat a lot of women. And then on the women's health side rebuttal, it's yeah. But if you, you miss one, they have a PE and they die, it's absolutely catastrophic. So once again, as we mentioned in previous other episodes on different topics, there can be this healthy chasm of opinions between the two. The trick is trying to find the bridge that connects the two so we can find something that's safe and evidence-based and keeps the patient out of risk. That's our job, and that's what we're trying to present here in this episode. See, this is why it's good to read other disciplines' comments and papers and publications because you kind of get their feel of what's going on, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. It's a good stance. Everything that was just referenced in those numbers, oh, 10 to 50 times less than medical high-risk patients or uh, less than 10 times the incidence of a knee or hip replacement, all that's true. But that's looking from an epidemiological standpoint, which is totally correct, versus then on an individual level. And from an OBGYN standpoint, we all get this, right? That all three components of Virchow's triad, remember that? Hypercoagulability, venous stasis, vascular damage and inflammation, all of those are exacerbated by the normal physiologic and hormonal changes that occur with pregnancy. Yes, cesarean delivery really kicks that up quite a bit, but even with regular pregnancy in the postpartum interval, those three issues are, are really maximized, which is why the risk is there. The frequency of VTE in pregnancy is about 1 in 1,200 deliveries according to the college, with the incidence of DVT being threefold more common than pulmonary embolus. So that's good. Thankfully, hopefully this thing presents more symptomatically because DVT is more common than PE, and PE is the thing that can kill you. So thankfully, uh, we, we can intervene, but you have to have a high index of suspicion uh, for those patients. ACOG also reminds us that in addition to the active components of Virchow's triad, obesity 
and C-section are the two independent risk factors for VTE during pregnancy and the postpartum interval. I know we've got to stop there. We have to say that again. Obesity and C-section are two independent risk factors for VTE during pregnancy and the postpartum interval. So y'all see it. See, we could just end right there. Ah, obesity and C-section, two independent risk factors. So in our patient who had a vaginal delivery with a BMI of 41, uh, if you follow that line, you're like, hey, that seems pretty legit to me. Okay, I guess we give her Lovenox. But of course, it's not that easy. Now, just to be very clear, there's nothing wrong. Somebody wants to give a patient whose BMI is 45, she had a vaginal delivery with, that's your only risk factor in addition to being in the postpartum state. There's nothing wrong with that. That's okay as being very conservative. But the question is, is that evidence-based? All right, you see the difference? So there's being conservative, which is totally okay uh, once you balance the risk and harm ratio. But is that evidence-based? And that's what we're trying to get here. Again, C-section stuff is one thing. We're going to touch on that as well. But where does vaginal delivery lie with the use of pharmacoprevention, pharmacoprophylaxis? We're going to get into that a little bit more uh, into, the, into the weeds here as we evolve and keep moving on in this episode. There are some guidelines that do call for pharmacoprophylaxis in patients after vaginal delivery based on morbid obesity, okay? So there are some guidelines that BMI greater than or equal to category three should receive pharmacoprophylaxis. And the main one that does that is the Royal College of OBGYN. All right. So they have their their, you know, committee opinions like we do. It's called Green Top Recommendations. So the Green Top Recommendation, which is 37A, that came out in uh, 2015. And it, it's very clear here. So let me read you the recommendation from the Royal College. I, kn- I know that's not where we are in the U.S., but just let you know how how different societies are different. All right. So the Royal College states All women with class 3 obesity, that's a BMI greater than or equal to 40, should be considered for prophylactic low molecular weight heparin in doses appropriate for their weight for 10 days after delivery. Now, I do need to be clear and to be to be very honest, this is a class D recommendation, which is expert opinion. So again, they do say, they don't say we recommend it, but they say it should be considered. So remember, words mean things here. So should be considered different than recommend, but it is in their guideline, even though they do make the stance that this is level D recommendation, which is expert opinion. So if you ever ask, hey, does, is there anybody who says give Lovenox for a VTE prevention? after vaginal delivery? The answer is yes. If the BMI is greater than 40, uh, even though it is a class D recommendation, according to the Royal College, class D is expert opinion, then, then yeah, you should consider it. But it's definitely not a hard and fast rule. Well, I don't think I really wanted to give one societal guideline this early on in the episode, but at least it sets the stage that, yeah, there are some guidelines for it. It's a little loosey-goosey, but there are some. And the reason why this postpartum VTE issue really is a big deal is because remember this, and this is a well-known clinical pearl, right? The highest risk time for a thrombotic event is postpartum. That risk is five times higher than during pregnancy itself five times. So let's say this another way to emphasize this risk difference between antepartum and postpartum, okay? The ACOG states in Practice Bulletin 196, which is from 2018, that although about one half of these events occur during pregnancy and one half occur in the postpartum period, the risk of actually getting it per day is greatest in the first week's 
following delivery, all right? So that's a lot to remember, especially if you're doing your oral boards coming up. When can you get a VTE uh, during pregnancy in the perinatal period? The answer is yes. (laughs) One half happened in the antepartum period, one half happened in postpartum. However, the per day risk is greatest in the first few weeks postpartum. So besides a personal history of thrombosis or the presence of thrombophilia or both, the primary risk factor for the development of a pregnancy-associated VTE are the physiological changes that accompany pregnancy, childbirth, and that postpartum interval. So even though the RCOG has that grade D recommendation, it is rooted in some kind of patient safety uh, protection because the highest risk is in the postpartum interval where the risk compared to antepartum is five times greater. Regarding postpartum VTE prophylaxis, remember that there's two main groups here. There's two patient populations, those that are on thromboprophylaxis antepartum and those who have not been on it, okay? So that makes sense, right? Obviously, if you're on it antepartum for some reason, well, you've got to continue it postpartum. So that's a no-brainer. So if you're asked on the oral boards, hey, what would you like to do on your patient who had antepartum thromboprophylaxis uh, with uh, low molecular weight heparin? What would you like to do with them uh, postpartum if they had the medication antepartum? Well, that's easy. Continue. If they got some risk factor that they had during pregnancy and you've got a higher risk of actually getting a VTE postpartum, I'm surely going to continue it. And the answer is for six weeks. The question here for this episode is what to do after vaginal delivery in those who are not on antepartum anticoagulation, but who have a big known risk factor, an independent risk factor like morbid obesity, like class three obesity. So we already talked about the Royal College and what they say. They're like, yeah, at least consider giving them uh, enoxaparin um, for uh, for at least 10 days postpartum, right? So there's there's two camps, one say six weeks, others say for at least 10 days, um, but c- at least consider giving them uh, anticoagulation. All right, podcast family, but you know we're not just going to stick with one society's stance, and that's not even the U.S.'s stance. That's the Royal College. So you know we're not going to leave it at that because it really is much more complicated. And I do want to talk about the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, CMQCC, and the National Program for Maternal Safety, the NPMS, because they have stance here as well. So we got to get into that. So before we do that, let's take one quick little break, and then let's cover the rest of the data. Let's remind ourselves of something that is very important as considered best practice and is going to make all nurse managers very happy and hospital admin because this is part of compliance, all right? This is part of CMS standards, it's ACOG standards, and it's just good patient care. And that's that all patients need to be screened for the risk of VTE during prenatal care and at each admission to the hospital and even once the patient is on postpartum. So that's the one I think gets lost in, in the translation. Like, oh, we did that on admit. Yeah, but they're also supposed to be screened on their on their way, on their transfer to postpartum because there's additional postpartum risk factors that weren't there during the admission process. For example, postpartum hemorrhage and blood transfusion. Those are two minor criteria in some um, risk stratification tools we'll talk about in a minute. And those may not have been present, obviously, on admission. So, yes, if you're doing it on admission, fantastic, but don't forget to also risk stratify on their way to postpartum. That is considered best practice, and it is also part of the Council on Patient Safety in Women's Healthcare. That came out by Mary Dalton in the Green Journal back in 2016. 
And it's also a joint commission issue. Joint commission does recommend the evaluation of postpartum patients who are at high risk for thromboembolism. And it recommends that those that meet that qualification as high risk, that they begin low molecular weight heparin. So some patients, again, may not qualify for pharmacological prophylaxis before delivery because they haven't met the criteria, but they may meet it postpartum. So I don't want to, you know, beat that horse down, but it is an important issue here that just because you do it once doesn't mean that you're completely done because you can also do it during the postpartum hospitalization, obviously after delivery. All right, everyone, I know that we are focused on postpartum VTE care here, but let's do a quick reminder about another gap in VTE prevention that has to do with admitted antepartum patients. Let me be very clear. I just took a little break, so I had to go back to labor and delivery, and we're admitting a patient at 32 weeks with preeclampsia with severe features who's not going home uh, within the next 72 hours, all right? I mean, we've already given labetadol because she has a high cardiac output uh, preeclamptic state, and so we've triggered that protocol. We're going to start mag. She's a prior section, all to say she's not going home. All right. Her BMI is also over 30, and she has advanced maternal age, and she's going to be admitted for more than 72 hours. That is actually a recommendation. There is a recommendation to give these patients low molecular weight heparin. So there's another gap here that we kind of forget, and that's the admitted antepartum patients who are going to be here long term. Now, SCDs are great. That's definitely something, and this patient is going to get that, and aspirin is totally acceptable as well. But if we're going to be very evidence-based, if we're really going to stick with some of the recommendations, notice it's some, not all, then that should also include low molecular weight heparin, all right? And you're like, I've never heard of that. Where does that come out from? Well, that's from the Council of Patient Safety and Women's Healthcare, and they do recommend, here it is, quote, thromboprophylaxis with daily low molecular weight heparin once or twice daily for antepartum patients who are being hospitalized for at least 72 hours who are not at high risk for bleeding or eminent childbirth, end quote. And that's the catch, all right? It's that who's not at risk for eminent childbirth. So, I mean, they go really severe and you got to do a stat section. Well, that's kind of a problem. And that's why this is not really fully implemented because of that catch who are not at risk for eminent childbirth. So just something to consider. That came out again by Mary Dalton in the Green Journal in 2018. And it's also in that Royal College of OBGYN Green Top Guideline, which is number 37A from 2015. Now, this also includes limited ambulation during antepartum care. Now, I know we don't do bed rest anymore, but there are some patients who do have limited ambulation for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's an unstable placenta previa that keeps bleeding. Uh, so strict bed rest is a no-go, and I'll be very clear. But there are some that do limited ambulation, and, and that's another gap here that maybe that's, that's someone who should have low molecular weight heparin. So I, I just want us to start thinking about this. This is a great discussion for the podcast, and again, even for you guys that as, as to pick this at an academic center for journal club is should we be doing this, giving them low molecular weight heparin for our antepartum patients because it is in some, but not all guidelines. And again, our focus on this is on postpartum patients. But I just found that interesting that especially with a BMI that's category three obese um, and immobility, you know, SEDs may not be enough. So just interesting to put out there and you all talk amongst yourselves. 
Oh, wait, I almost forgot. Uh, part of this antepartum risk stratification, remember, ACOG does not endorse any one specific tool, but there is one called the Padua uh, OB Risk Scale. That's P-A-D-U-A, the Padua, okay? And it's been modified for obstetrical patients. Uh, and it does include one of the high-risk factors, I'm looking at it right now, is admission greater than 72 hours with limited ambulation. And that's why strict bed rest or limited ambulation really does kind of suck because it really does place patients at that higher risk for for VTE. So um, again, there is a modified Padua risk assessment model for obstetrics, and that is one that's referenced by the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. And it does include as a high risk factor that reduced mobility with admission antepartum for greater than or equal to 72 hours. All right, everyone, there are two organizations that I do want to specifically cover here. The California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, CMQCC. We've highlighted them in previous episodes because they do a lot of bundles. They have a postpartum hypertensive bundle, a PPH bundle, and they do a lot of great work out of California. And then there's the NPMS. That's the National Partnership for Maternal Safety, okay? Um, Because even though there's a lot of other organizations, those are the two that are most uh, uh, relevant uh, and applicable to what we're talking about here. But out of the CMQCC, in one of their documents that talks about VTE prevention, listen to this. This is pretty eye-opening because they actually compare the different VTE uh, prevention uh, guidelines from different societies And if you actually take a look at what the the guidelines say, they actually give a percentage of the amount of patients that will be adequately protected, even though they have a bigger pool that's at risk. Okay, so let me explain. So according to the California Maternal Care Collaborative, who evaluated and compared the different society's recommendations, they took, for example, ACOG that says, hey, uh, if there is a personal history of VTE or a thrombophilia, then give... uh, uh, pharmacoprophylaxis. Remember, we touched on that before. That would cover about 1% of those who are actually at risk. Wow. And that's not my numbers, guys. All right. This is CMQCC. But you're like, oh my gosh, really? Yeah, because they haven't taken into account a big factor like obesity. Uh, and 50% of the US population is obese. So that's why there's a gap. Now, if you take a look at their own, at the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, um, which is um, a one major risk factor and then two or more minor risk factors, which mostly has to do with obesity and C-section, well, that would cover 25%. You're like, hey, that's much better for sure. If you compare the American uh, College of Chest Physicians, ASCCP, and they are much broader. They include a lot more people to give or to include a postpartum uh, pharmacoprophylaxis. They cover 35%. Now listen to this. Remember I said that the broadest, the most loosey-goosey, the most liberal uh, recommendation of who should get Lovenox is the Royal College, right? Because, hey, we recommend that all patients that have class 3 obesity just in and of themselves uh, should get pharmacological prevention. And, and because they have a very rigorous and very broad scoring system, the system that would cover the most patients is the Royal College at 85%. So yeah, Royal College is legit. I mean, they're not messing around. They're like, oh, congratulations, you've delivered. Uh, that's my British. Is that British? I don't know what that is. You delivered. Here's your Lovenox. Boy, that's not even British. That's British with a Hispanic accent. So anyway, all to say different society guidelines have different uh, criteria. Some are very restrictive uh, to not use medication when it's not needed, aka ACOG. And then some very broad like the Royal College. 
No, I was not trying to poke fun at the British accent. Trust me, I was just trying to make a point. Uh, We get made fun of with our Texas accent all the time, y'all. How about that? That's not even Texas either. I don't know. Let's just get back on. Okay, so real quick on the two societies that I spoke about, the National Partnership for Maternal Safety, the NPMS. Uh, Let's talk about that very quickly, and then we'll talk about uh, what CMQCC recommends for postpartum VTE, specifically after vaginal delivery, all right? So the National Partnership for Maternal Safety was actually created uh, to help improve maternal health and safety in the U.S., and there's multiple stakeholder organizations organizations here that helped develop this, including ACOG, like Mary Dalton that we've talked about, uh, and others, including um, uh, um, CMS, uh, and others that have have really had good buy-in into this organization. The NPMS recommends using the Padua score for patients that are postpartum after vaginal delivery. So there you go. There is one organization, remember, it's not ACOG, but it's the National Partnership for Paternal Safety that says, hey, Consider using the OB Padua scale. We've already talked about that one. And consider a uh, pharmacological agent if the Padua score is greater than four. All right. So that Padua predictive score, again, it's good. It is published, but it's not necessarily validated across different populations. And that's why some people don't use it. Um, but they do risk stratify. Remember, we talked about one of the high risk factors was antepartum uh, admission for greater than 72 hours with limited ambulation. So that's just one thing on the Padua scale. Uh, other factors are like obesity, pregnancy, acute infection. Those are all low risk, and each one of those gets a point of one. Things like thrombophilia, that bed rest or limited ambulation for greater than 72 hours, or a previous history of VTE, those are all high risk factors, and those all get a point of three each. All right. So according to the National Partnership of Maternal Safety, a modified Padua scale of four or more uh, should trigger postpartum VTE therapy, and that includes after vaginal birth, all right? So there are some guidelines. It's not ACOG endorsed, but National uh, uh, Partnership for Maternal Safety does use that. Now, CMQCC also recommends pharmacological thromboprophylaxis for patients who have uh, a postpartum state if their BMI is greater than 40 and... And there it is, not just it by itself, but if they have that and an additional risk factor for VTE, like thrombophilia, all right? So don't ever let somebody tell you, oh, no one recommends a VTE prophylaxis for a vaginal delivery because they're not surgical. That's not the case. That's not true. National Partnership for Maternal Safety does recommend it if the Padua score is greater than four, and that includes after vaginal delivery, and CMQCC says, hey... Uh, We do recommend pharmacological prophylaxis for patients after vaginal delivery if their BMI is 40 and they have an additional risk factor like thrombophilia. Other risk factors that can be considered are things like uh, severe preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction, of course, some autoimmune condition like sickle cell uh, or lupus, and if they have postpartum hemorrhage or receive blood products, all right? So think about that. How many patients do we have with a BMI over 40 who end up having PPH? Uh, and or get a unit of blood. And we're like, oh, okay, well, you're all better. You got your unit of blood. You're fine. But we for, we, we, we kind of leave them in that gap because according to CMQCC, those are risk factors for VTE. So you see how complicated it is? So while ACOG restricts it more towards C-sections, 
um, maternal, the uh, California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative and the NPMS do, does actually have recommendations. They have statements on who to give Lovenox to postpartum. But it's not just BMI by itself. It's always BMI with friends. As we're getting to the end of the episode, we do need to reinforce this idea that preeclampsia isn't just bad for the mother, isn't just bad for the child, but it's also bad for her clotting system. So remember, preeclampsia with severe features is indeed an independent risk factor for postpartum VTE. So if your patient has severe preeclampsia and she has a BMI over 30, especially if it's a BMI over 40, those are two big independent risk factors in addition to being in the postpartum interval uh, for VTE. A Norwegian register-based case control study, including more than 600,000 pregnancies, reported a four-fold increased risk of VTE in patients with preeclampsia with severe features in the postpartum interval. However, there was no association that was found between VTE and preeclampsia in the antepartum interval. Wow, is that wild or what? So again, Norwegian-based study, they're like, yeah, if you got severe features, you seem to be okay antepartum. It's that postpartum effect. Remember, there's a multiplier there of risk that we've already discussed. And so severe preeclampsia in the postpartum interval greatly does increase your risk for VTE. And this wasn't published like last year. This was published way back in 2008 in the Gray Journal. And the title of that publication was Incidents and Risk Factors of Venous Thromboembolism in Pregnancy and Puparium, a Register-Based Case Control Study. And again, it was in the Gray Journal in 2008 with the lead author being Jacobson. All right, podcast family, as we're wrapping this up, so what's the take-home message? Just because they avoided a C-section doesn't mean that we automatically don't consider or at least think about pharmacoprophylaxis for VTE prevention because they had a vaginal birth, okay? Ah, oh, you all ready for a good spoiler? Because there's a good spoiler here that I, I've got to mention because if you know your data, I don't want you sending me a message. Hey, Chapa, what about the uh, study from the Green Journal in April 2023 from Oaks? Uh, what about that? That kind of is a spoiler, all right? Let me tell you why it's a spoiler coming up next. Man, in an attempt to be evidence-based, sometimes you read something and then you're like, oh, hell, what am I going to do with that? And that's exactly what I thought when I read the April 2023 meta-analysis looking at the efficacy of postpartum pharmacological VTE prevention. Okay, spoiler, all right? Now, now I'm going to give you the results here, and even though it's kind of depressing, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. I'm going to explain, all right? Because, so if you're thinking, oh, I, that must not have worked. Well, that's kind of what I'm saying, but... The results did not show a lot of effect only because they were being uh, given medication. So the rates of ETE were overall small. All right. So again, this was by Oaks et al. in April 2023. And the title was Efficacy of Postpartum Pharmacological Thromboprophylaxis a systematic review and meta-analysis. Now, to be clear, this is not just for vaginal delivery. This is just a meta-analysis on all studies that looked at the at the occurrence of VTE with postpartum pharmacological uh, thromboprophylaxis. 
Well, let's just cut to the chase here. The authors concluded, quote, the current literature provides an insufficient sample size to conclude whether postpartum VTE rates differ between those exposed to postpartum pharmacological prophylaxis versus those who are left unexposed. And they state the reason why as the rarity of VTE events, end quote. So it's not that it technically didn't work, is that they just had insufficient evidence based on the studies. So yeah, it'd be great to say, wow, we did a systematic review and it's definitely effective. It totally works. So for now, again, don't interpret this that, that this means not to use it. It just means that um, because it, the, the rates of VTE are so small overall, because we're doing something about it, it, it's hard to do a systematic review and prove efficacy, though we already know the pathophysiology of VTE events, and that's why we should do it, right? Especially if they're operative to follow ACOG and SMFM guidance. And if they have vaginal delivery, at least consider the recommendations from the National Partnership for Maternal Safety and or the CMQCC. As a last point before we wrap this thing up, what about aspirin? I mean, aspirin has definitely been used for VTE prophylaxis in orthopedic surgery and in other surgical cases. But what about postpartum? I like the idea. It sounds like it would work. It seems that it would work. But as of right now, to be very clear, there's no evidence-based guidelines that suggest aspirin strictly for postpartum VTE prophylaxis, okay? So if you're going to do it, and I have done it, to be very clear, because it, it can't hurt as long as the patient doesn't have any allergic symptoms or GI issues, um, and it potentially could help. But as right now, there's no society guidance for it, and right now we don't have the evidence, although this is currently going on right now. They are looking at aspirin for postpartum VTE prophylaxis, and it's the subject of ongoing clinical trials, but right now it's still considered experimental, all right? So what about aspirin? Yeah, great idea, great thought. It should work, but we do not have the the burden of evidence to recommend that publicly or on a national basis as of right now. All right, podcast family, that's bringing us to a wrap. We have covered VTE pharmacoprophylaxis after vaginal delivery. So if your first response is, oh, I don't need, they don't need that, that a vaginal birth, you may be missing a vital piece of intervention, especially in those with high risk. And if you say, oh, I give it to everybody, well, that may be overkill because there are those that are specifically targeted at high risk patients, including those with class three obesity. So as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.